Lewis points out that Christian fasting is not two things. It's not a repudiation of something as wholly bad. It's also not, uh, he says, a stoic superiority. Rather, fasting goes in line with the Christian doctrine that creation is good in its, its essence, but it is fallen and therefore needs correction. And so things like asceticism and fasting are for the correction of something gone, gone wrong. They're not the rejection of something that's totally bad or wicked or evil. And so that's why we fast in Lent. And so Lewis says this, in Christian fasting, there is a respect for the thing rejected. Marriage is good, though not for me. Wine is good, though I must not drink it. Feasts are good, though today we fast. Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. I'm Sean. And I'm Jordan. Join us in season two, where Lewis will be our guide in the Christian life, teaching us to pray and helping us to reflect through the seasons of Advent, Christmas, and Lent. So Sean, something funny that happened um, last week in pop culture was that this episode of TV came out called The Last of Us. That's the show, The Last of Us. Uh, have you seen it or heard of it? I've, ne- I've, I've never seen a single episode. I just was speculating with somebody the other day whether or not it was something that I should watch because I feel like it's coming up everywhere. Yeah, I am not going to confirm or deny whether I've watched it because I don't want people to judge me. I will say publicly that I will not publicly recommend that anyone with a Christian faith watch it. However, um, what's interesting about this show is that it was filmed all around Southern Alberta, which is where I live. Yes. And the other interesting thing about it is that it's about a zombie apocalypse. And there's a shot in the episode that came out last week where they pass by the bridge, this this landmark bridge that's in my hometown of Lethbridge. Oh, that's awesome. And I don't know if you remember, but the last time before this podcast that we're doing, the last time that you and I had a public presence on social media a couple years ago was over <laughs> a debate about a zombie apocalypse meeting location. Do you recall this? Yeah. You know, that is so funny. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and open up my Instagram right now. No way. And say my last post uh, from right at the beginning of the pandemic mm-hmm. was right after that because we started discussing where we would go. And I was like, hey, is this the time that we actually, it's time for us to, to, um, enact our various plans. Are you going yeah. to Lethbridge? And I, at the, but I was in, I was in Turkey at the time, so I actually couldn't do That's what right. I had always planned to do. Yeah. So, uh, Sean and I started this debate and I can't remember how it began, but it started privately, ended up on social media. Sean has one plan in case of an apocalypse, not necessarily just zombie apocalypse, but in case of apocalypse, 
Sean has a meeting location that he's been telling people, if an apocalypse happens, meet here. My plan is to meet at the Lethbridge High Level Bridge, which I'm now bringing up because there's this worldwide phenomenon TV show about a zombie apocalypse, and the High Level Bridge was just featured in it. And I thought, what <laughs> they, the is it a rally? Is it a rally point for it for them? Like, do you get so gratified that the writers, the producers of that show were like, <laughs> they came to Lethbridge and they looked around and they said, this is where people would be gathering. No, it's, it, they just kind of pass by. Actually, the bridge is blown up in, in the shot and there's a train dangling from it. So that's cool. But uh, I mean, do you want to say where your meeting location is now that everyone's listening? Should an apocalypse I, happen and you want to go meet with Sean, people know where to find me. I will be, this is my plan. Every, every day for a month after the apocalypse begins, I will be meeting at high noon on the west bank of the river at the Lethbridge High Level Bridge. And after that, we might, we might choose another location, but we will leave a note there because you always leave a note if you've learned anything from Arrested Development. But, Sean, what is your plan? Where can we meet you in case of apocalypse? You know what? I, I'm sorry, listeners of Lesser Known Lewis. I'm not telling you. I, it's, it's too sensitive because I recognize, I recognize that there's a number of different ways that our society could fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my plan was a little bit more grounded in reality, I feel, than a zombie apocalypse. Um, okay. This is what everybody thought when they downloaded this episode. They're like, oh, I'm sure that... You know, like some thoughts, part two is going to start with this. Anyway, so I, I, uh, I do have a location. I will say it's in Northern Canada mm-hmm. and that it is, um, it is one of my, as they would say in Turkish, my John Evi. It's where, it's where it's like the, the home of my soul. Wow. And my, my thing is I was up there hunting recently and it is, it's just right at the edge of where the forests stop hmm. and, and the farmland begins in Saskatchewan. And so it's just super wildlife dense. So, I mean, while you're leaving notes on bridges and stuff like that, mm-hmm. my colony of people who I've been cultivating over the years mm-hmm. to come and join me up there um, will, with total confidence, know that they're going to be settling in a place where they could live for many generations. Wow. That's good. Well, I do know where you will be. So friends, if you <laughs> want to get to Sean, come find me and we might end up going there to Sean's what is it? John Evi? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a, the Turkish word for zenzukt. Do you know what that is? No. That's a Lewisian idea, and we will encounter it next season. That is an amazing tease, Jordan. It's a German word that he uses to refer to joy or longing or desire. Oh, I love yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, I love it. Anyway, Sean, why don't we start this episode? Enough of my shenanigans. Um, I've forgotten what we're here to talk about. So could you remind us? I will do it. I'll do it only to distract attention from where my uh, where my secret meeting location is going to be. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, Lent begins soon. Uh, in fact, by the time this episode comes out, it'll just be a week away. Uh, way back at our, our Christmas episode, we started this essay um, called Some Thoughts, and it was written for medical missionaries who worked at a hospital in Ireland 
and kind of the, the Lewis connection there and why he would take special interest in this hospital is because his brother, Warney, um, was staying there. He was being treated for alcoholism in this hospital. So uh, this is meant to be an encouraging message to the people who are working there, uh, really saying that their, their treatment of the sick and their, their day-to-day vocation of being nurses and doctors and orderlies and administrators at this hospital that is serving his brother is actually really important. Uh, so the essay focuses on um, what we could call a Christian paradox or a spiritual tension that Christianity is neither only a world-affirming religion nor only a world-denying religion. It does both. It affirms the here and now, the physical, the created, the tangible, the material. Um, but it also says there's something beyond this world. We, we shouldn't get stuck here. Uh, so it cuts across both categories. And at least according to Lewis, and maybe we'll get into this in our discussion, uh, he says uh, that this is unlike any other worldview or religion that's out there. This is a both-and religion, a both-and faith. So... Um, Again, we, we talked about um, how Jesus' incarnation really is a clear sign um, that God affirms the goodness of this present world and, and creation, you know, um, that the word would take on flesh in John 1. And, uh, and so we kind of continue that theme, but now we're looking at it rather than an Advent Christmas angle, we're now looking at it from a Lenten angle. And with Lent beginning next week with Ash Wednesday, on February 22nd this year, uh, Christians generally, uh, at least historically during Lent, we use this time to prepare for the celebration of Easter um, by doing various forms of fasting and self-reflection, self-examination. We're, we're asking God to give us contrite hearts, which is a phrase that we'll encounter from Lewis. Uh, well, it's from the prayer book and from prayers uh, that Christians have prayed for centuries. Um, but Lewis will bring it up in the essay we talk about next week. And often these disciplines that we use during Lent, they're physical disciplines. We always talk about the spiritual disciplines, but, um, you know, spiritual disciplines always have something physical to them, right? Fasting, for example. And I think it's interesting uh, in Screwtape, Screwtape writes to his nephew, and he says, you know, keep your patient from using his body when he prays because humans always forget, and it's to the devil's benefit, the humans forget that when they use their body to pray, it benefits their souls, that what they do with their bodies affects their souls. And so um, all these spiritual disciplines are physical and what we do with our bodies affects our souls. And so things like fasting, for example, we do it because it's a, it affects our souls. Uh, what else affects our souls? Giving money to the poor. That's a physical thing we do, um, obviously for the benefit of the poor, first and foremost. But the, the, the kickback is that it affects our souls. Um, but also being physically present with the sick and dying, which is something that Lewis is writing this essay about. Um, taking care of the sick and dying in the hospital. And so why is this? It's because Christianity is not only a world-affirming religion, right? It's not just hedonism, another form of, of um, eat, drink, and be merry. Right. Rather, as Lewis reminds us in this essay, Some Thoughts, there is also this world-denying aspect of Christianity. And he says, you know, we, we have a central image 
um, or the central image of Christianity is a man dying by torture. And martyrdom is almost only something found in Christianity. Most religions aren't about that. Um, something else unique to Christianity is that we're, we're weird for meditating on our mortality. And that we also were known for trusting our ultimate treasure to another world. So that's the part of the essay that we're going to look at today, kind of in preparation for Lent. Um, Sean, what are the parts of the world-denying or Lenten-themed stuff from some thoughts that stood out to you? Well, let me start with a quote from Lewis. So he has just gone through where he, he talks about this tension that you've already described, Jordan, quite a bit, and um, that he talks about um, how polytheism turns into nature, nature worship, ultimately, and then pantheism, um, hostility to nature. You know, he posits those two things. Um, and then he says this, so referring to other worldviews, he says, quote, none of these beliefs really leaves you free to both enjoy your breakfast and to mortify your inordinate appetites, much less to mortify appetites recognized as innocent at present, lest they should become inordinate. So one of the things that stood out to me is how, um, you know, Lewis draws our attention to the fact that um, we don't, when we're talking about fasting or abstinence, we're actually not talking about uh, holding ourselves back from unrighteous things necessarily, or from wrong things or from harmful things. Uh, and so even in you know, again, any of our listeners that might be fasting through Lent or people who don't fast according to the church calendar, but would still fast or, or practice some kind of, um, you know, self-mortification or self-denial throughout the year, we are still, even by our fasting, actually affirming the goodness of the thing that we're fasting from or abstaining from. So an example would be for me, how helpful it's been um, because my family is so spread out the use of social media. And, and in, our, in our banter beforehand, um, you know, I was talking about my last post on Instagram was actually from like three years ago. Um, and part of the reason for that was just because I noticed that that had become an appetite that grew out of control. And I, I had read a book and, um, you know, watched a couple of documentaries and listened to some podcasts that was just talking about how social media can control us. And it was interesting because I was thinking about like how good it is that, um, again, I can communicate with, with family and I can communicate with friends at the drop of a hat and stay really involved, even though I was literally thousands of kilometers away in that season, but how that good thing had come to kind of dominate my life. And so, you know, fasting, we talk about media fasts and we talk about other things, um, like that. I had one of the, the less orthodox quote unquote fasts that I've seen somebody do is I remember a friend of mine fasting sight for a few days by blindfolding himself. <laughs> um, just to associate more with, with, uh, those who had visual impairments, the blind and that kind of thing. And, um, <laughs> that, that's really not fasting. Fasting is food and water. That's what it's about biblically. Um, but Lent is about more than that. And, and I think mm. Lewis's essay here is about more than just fasting too. It's about all forms of self-denial and how that reorients us away from the things that control us mm. and, um, shows us, Hey, like we actually need to pay attention to this quote, other world as well. Um, we have to pay attention to um, uh, heavenly realities too. What I really liked about what he reminds us about fasting 
what he teaches us about fasting is how it's different than other attitudes that we can fall into or other attitudes that are out there about fasting. And I think we've talked about the stoic, uh, the popularity of stoicism that's Mm -hmm. out there in the world today. And with that, there's a a rise in a popularity of fasting Mm -hmm. in secular Mm -hmm. society today. And, you know, it goes along with the fads of dieting and stuff. But Lewis points out that Christian fasting is not two things. It's not a repudiation of something as wholly bad. It's also not, uh, he says, a stoic Mm. superiority. So, for example, we're not saying that we're abstaining from gluten because gluten is bad and I'll look down on you Mm -hmm. if you eat gluten. Of course, that, I'm just, you know, using gluten as a silly example. But we, I think we all know people like that with gluten, right? Um, but in a more biblical example, there in Corinth, there was this hyper-spirituality that came along with their, with their salvation to Christ, where they thought now that they were in Christ, they started looking down on things of the physical world. And some of them stopped, some of them, some married couples stopped having sex and started looking down on sexuality um, and because of their hyper-spirituality and their over-realized uh, eschatology, which is a big theological word that means they thought that the end had already come and that they were perfected spiritual beings already and they didn't Mm -hmm. need their bodies and everything in the body was bad already. And so Lewis is saying, that's not why Christians Mm -hmm. fast things. It's not because we're perfect spirit beings now. Right. And we get some of that in some corners of, um, I think some charismatics are prone to heading in that direction. So charismatics have to be careful about that. But, uh, Evangelicals I th- have to be careful about heading in the puritanical direction. Mm-hmm. And Lewis writes about that in his book, uh, A Pilgrim's Regress, about this whole land of Puritania where uh, there's rules. And if you step out of line, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And, I, and Paul writes about that in, I think, Colossians chapter 3. You know, mm-hmm. don't taste, don't mm-hmm. touch, right? Yeah. Um, that's not what the gospel is about either. And and maybe if since I'm on this um, train of thought, cor- offering corrections to all corners of the church, let me uh, continue <laughs> on this high horse and offer a correction to the, the more traditional churches um, that can sometimes end up in... Uh, social justice mode they can they can end up in um, a stoic superiority of um, being mother Teresa's, and and that can end up in purely works-based even maybe this is maybe i'm lacking the knowledge to say this but i'm going to say it anyway leftist wokeism where we are enlightened with our 
<laughs> with everything we now know about um, humanity and our, uh, we're self-assured in our morals. And so um, we're not going to do, we're going to fast from those old um, traditional ways of doing things. I think maybe I'm, I'm off on a little bit of a rabbit trail here. But anyway, Lewis is saying that there's this stoic superiority that goes along with fasting. And that's, not, that's also not what fasting is. Rather, fasting comes from the Christian doctrine that creation, or, or goes in line with the Christian doctrine that creation is good in its, its essence, but it is fallen and therefore mm -hmm. needs correction. Mm -hmm. And so things like asceticism and fasting are for the correction of something gone, gone wrong. They're not the rejection of something that's totally bad or wicked or evil. And so that's why we fast in Lent. And so Lewis says this, he says, Christian fasting or in Christian fasting, there is, and this is Lewis's quote, a respect for the thing rejected. Marriage is good though not for me. Wine is good, though I must not drink it. Feasts are good, though today we fast. What did you think about that, Sean? Yeah, I think as you use that Corinthian analogy too, as a way of just kind of shining light on what Lewis is saying from a biblical example that we share, is that the irony is on one hand, you have, you know, these Corinthians that you said, are thinking like hyper spiritually, so they're they're degrading their body, but it also it led to a disassociation of how the body can go wrong as well. So there's there's these stories happening in first and second Corinthians in that same church where you have incestuous relationships being excused as and and um uh, people sleeping with prostitutes and them just saying like, well this doesn't matter. And Paul has to say like, hey, don't you realize when you join yourself to somebody sexually that you are you are joining Christ to that person. And, and that, you know, we often talk about like our bodies being temples for the Holy Spirit, but that, that's like the context of some of those verses. Mm. He's not like, yeah, go to the gym and work out. He's saying hmm. that what you do with your body has physical or has spiritual impact rather. And what you do spiritually has physical impact that we are mm. so much more tied together, like a Celtic knot, you know, like you can't really see where it begins and ends Wow, nearly as much as we would like to think. Whereas um, kind of more of a traditional Western worldview, which we often just describe like, oh, medieval Western worldview is Christian, not quite true, at least not all the time, is, is like dualistic in nature. It's more dualistic in nature. So, so it, it, it compartmentalizes and separates the spiritual and the physical. So continue with that thought, because doesn't this essay have something to say about sexuality and marriage? Yeah, I, that was one of the other things that I, I felt it didn't really fit into necessarily the, the Lenten theme that you, uh, you know, that, that we're discussing, but um, Lewis says, he makes this claim and I, I kind of want to hear what you have to think about it and I'll share my thoughts too. But Lewis says, quote, that Christianity has more than any other religion blessed marriage, end quote. And so he's, he's just kind of boasting that. Uh, as Christians, we emphasized um, marriage and the marriage union more than any of the other surrounding religions in the ancient Near East um, as as it emerged. Jordan, I guess maybe first, is this a fair statement? Like, I 
I didn't feel like in any comparative religion or world religion course that I ever took that I would be like, I, I would have made this comment. I, I was actually really confronted by it and, and thought, I don't know if this is true or not. And so maybe we have to just say that this is Lewis's perspective because um, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on, on what religions think about marriage. I can compare with Islam a little bit. But, but yeah, did you have any, any thought about that? Why Lewis would even make that claim? I don't know. I haven't studied other religions enough to feel like I could say one way or the other um, if he's correct. And I don't even know if I could say whether Lewis had the grounds to really authoritatively make such a claim. But my inkling is that he had a pretty good perspective. And I don't, at least as far as ancient religions, I think he's correct. I was going to say that too. At least he'd be able to compare it with various forms of, of paganism mm -hmm. and that would have culturally surrounded the early church. And I think... I think in context of this paragraph, he has the ancient religions in mind. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. But anyway, I, this is the thought that I ended up pursuing, was that um, whether or not it can be, you know, we can comparatively say that Christians um, bless marriage more than any other religion is actually kind of irrelevant there. It, it ends up being a really helpful example for us of the, of the spiritual impact of physical, mundane, day-to-day -day reality, and then vice versa, how that day-to-day -day reality really helps us. And I was thinking about our, our culture now, um, here in the West, in Canada, I can speak to specifically, and how um, actually once we take sexuality out of the context of marriage, procreation, and building a family, that a lot of the things that the church would look at and, and say are excesses in our, in, in like kind of just general culture and the way that we talk about sexuality, that it's a physical act with no, no necessary emotional repercussions. So like hookup culture, um, it, is, it is something that is completely just about your own tastes, your own appetites. So whatever you have an appetite for, actually, you shouldn't um, restrain that in any way. You should explore it and, and express it and that kind of thing. And so without marriage and childbearing, I, I would go so far as to say that the, the so-called progressive, I don't like, I don't really like saying progressive and just applying it to all, you know, but anyway, that the, the socially progressive argument is pretty sound, uh, that we should just, um, be able to decide our own gender, that, that our, our, um, birth sex should not impact our sexual and our gender identity, that, um, any number of partners and any type of sexual partner is appropriate and that there's no consequences to any of those decisions as long as we decide as a society that there won't be consequences. When in fact, we know that for the, the well-being of a child, that actually the, the more stable a family is, the better off that kid is, like almost by any metric. And how when we are restrained and, and I actually use that word restrained intentionally when we are chased is maybe how Lewis would say it probably hmm. in our sexuality that we um, minimize the mental, spiritual, and emotional damage that we do to other people. Or maybe more accurately, we, we decrease the likelihood of causing that kind of harm to other people. And so again, just, just an example of how 
Like marriage is blessed because it's the context for a good sexual relationship. It's not blessed because it is a party pooper <laughs> when you just want to go out and sleep with every attractive person that you find. That's not mm -hmm. the point. The point is actually that there is a good thing promised when we are, um, there is a good thing promised when our appetites are conformed to the will of God and the patterns of scripture. And then so we enter into times of abstinence and fasting so that all of our appetites, like marriage and sexuality, can be conformed to their proper place. In some ways, then, it feels like, and I've encountered this with my own experience of fasting, but I've also encountered it with, um, as when I was a youth pastor trying to lead youth into times of fasting, um, and teaching them how to fast, it feels like one of the lessons, the first lessons you learn in trying to fast something, anything, is just how hard it is to be self-disciplined and how imperfect you are. Mm. Yeah. Um, with, with small things, with just trying not to eat something, let alone how coming face to face with how imperfect you are with bigger things like you're talking about with being chaste, with being sexually moral, you know, your bigger fatal flaws. Would you say that trying to be perfect is one of the things that trips people up? Yeah, that that's an interesting question because that does take me back to, um, I, you know, Lewis also says in this essay that he, he feels like everything that secular humanists really urge us to do in terms of doing good in the world here and now is something that, that uh, Christians are compelled by their faith to do. And you, you listed a bunch of them, caring for the poor, um, caring for the environment, caring for ourselves those, in our bodies, those types of things, just doing good for our neighbor and, and by extension to our enemy even too. And, uh, and so, I, yeah, as I was reading that, I was thinking like, oh, that's true. He uses the word even that we, if we don't do those things, at least we quote, repent with shame for not having done them. <laughs> so it, it, it's kind of an interesting, you know, critique to say that, oh man, Christians are so otherworldly that they're of no earthly good. That's like a, an axiom that I've heard. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that our faith compels us to be better. Um, but where, like you said, like how, how do we get tripped up in this? My experience of fasting, little things and big things both, and, and as well um, in walking with other people in it, like you, you talked about youth, is that we are actually trying to be so perfect. We're trying to be perfect in what we do it. So um, our faith our actions can make us better, but only the Holy Spirit can make us perfect is, is what mm. I would say to that. And that, um, that trying to be perfect actually robs us of some of the good that fasting, um, is like some of the good that fasting can, can do in our lives. And, uh, and that we have to keep feasting and, and fasting in tension. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that we, we can't forget the other side, the, the world-affirming side of this whole equation. Well, I think that's the, the biggest thing that this essay helped me walk away with is, is holding both of those things in tension. And I would encourage everyone to listen to this essay. It's only like 
Hold on, let me look at it. I've printed the essay out and it's like, it's eight paragraphs. Like it's not very long at all. And I think it's really worth your time to read, especially as we head into Lent. I think for, for those of you who might be new to Lent, you can maybe see this essay as an encouragement that you, you might do well to venture into the other half, shall we say, of the Christian paradox this year and maybe try some Lenten things out. Uh, like a reminder that Christianity involves two sides of Christian belief and practice. It's not only world-affirming practices, but it's also Christianity also has world-denying practices and beliefs, right? There's yeah. there's a full expression of following Jesus, uh, and that full expression includes both. There's life. Life in Jesus involves both carrying your cross in order that you might know his resurrection and his life. Like, like the one hangs on the other in, in, um, I think it's Philippians chapter three, grammatically to know his resurrection grammatically depends on that. You would participate in his, in knowing his death. Mm. Like you, you, you can't know the power of his resurrection without participating in his sufferings and death. Um, and so for those of us, on the other hand, who, who are used to practicing Lent, the encouragement is also don't forget the other half of the Christian paradox, the world affirming side. And so, you know, in two ways, maybe, first of all, don't forget still to feast on Sundays, you know, during Lent, it took me three years when I was new to Anglicanism and Lent. I didn't know that during Lent, Sundays are feast days still, and you don't fast, you're fast on Sundays, whatever you're fasting. And with that, I didn't realize that um, the goal of Lent is not to outperform Jesus's death. <laughs> <laughs> I took Paul's words about, um, what does he say? Uh, making up in my flesh the, uh, what is lacking in what is lacking Christ. in the wounds of Christ? Yeah. yeah, I took that pretty seriously without like thinking about it cognitively, uh, consciously. I think I was really trying to out outdo Jesus's death with my fasting. I was, I was gonna make up for it, uh, take it on myself. Really, uh, the second thing is is that Lent is just as much about caring for the sick and the poor as it is about fasting. Mm. Those things are uh, about caring for people still in this world, affirming their existence in this world. Uh, and in that way, Lent is actually about affirming this world just as much as it is about denying this world. And um, Lewis at the end of this essay talks about why it is that we can attend to the brokenness in others and embracing the shame you know, you talked about the shame of, of failure when it comes to fasting. He talks about the shame of why, of death, and the shame of why things aren't the way they should be. Let me read part of this quote. Actually, I might just read the whole thing because it sets us up well to maybe head into Lent here. Lewis writes, The world 
knowing how all our real investments are beyond the grave, might expect to be might expect us to be less concerned than other high-minded people who tell us that death does not matter. But we follow one who stood and wept at the grave of Lazarus, of Lazarus, because death is even more horrible in his eyes than in ours. Though he was to revive him a moment later, he wept at the shame. And so hmm. I think now we go into Lent and it's a time to learn to fight against the the death which mars god's creation which is what lewis mm-hmm. says here and we do that not because we love this creation um as an ultimate thing but it's because we love something else as ultimate because we mm-hmm. love someone else more than this world that we're able to deny this world in fact it's only then it's only when we love someone else god more that we're able to love this world and love those in this world more than those who know no other world and that's how he he ends this essay he says because we love something else more than this world we love even this world better than those who know no other sean any last thoughts i don't think i could say it any better than lewis Thanks for joining us again on Lesser Known Lewis. If you want to get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at Lesser Known Lewis or by email at lesserknownlewis at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember, our Lent series begins next week. I think our Lent episodes will be some of our best from this season with our guests, Reverend Dr. Joel Scandret and William O'Flaherty. Lewis's three essays from the Lent series are among my favorites that we have ever done, and I highly encourage you to go read them beforehand. You can find all three at pintswithjack.com essays. The three are Miserable Offenders, The Trouble with X, and On Forgiveness. Now, as always. As you meditate on this lesser-known Lewis work this week, We pray that it would be Jesus who would become more well-known.